Today on episode number 164 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Joe Hoyle shares his expertise from 46 years of teaching and reflects how to set students up for success from the start. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Hello, I am Bonnie Stahoviak, and if you've been listening for a while, you probably know the name James Lang. Perhaps even if you haven't been listening for a name <laughs> for a while, his name may sound familiar. He, whenever he emails me, he's been on the show a few times now, and whenever he emails me and recommends a guest, I know that it's time to set down everything I'm doing and go to the email and get in touch with the person because they're just bound to be a wonderful guest, and such is the case with today's guest, Joe Hoyle. He's an associate professor of accounting in the Robbins School of Business at the University of Richmond. He's currently completing his 46th year of teaching. In 2015, he was the first recipient of the Cook Prize for Undergraduate Teaching presented by the American Accounting Association. In 2006, he was named one of 22 favorite professors in the U.S. by Business Week. In 2007, he was named the Virginia Professor of the Year by the Council for Advancement and Support of Education. In 2012, he was named one of nine favorite professors in the U.S. Bloomberg Business Week. In 2013, he was one of several college teachers highlighted in the book Cheating Lessons by James Lang. He has co-authored two textbooks, Advanced Accounting, now in its 13th edition, and Financial Accounting it's in its second edition. He has written a free online book titled Tips and Thoughts on Improving the Teaching Process in College, a Personal Diary. And he's written over 240 entries for his teaching blog, which has had over a quarter million page views. The video of his last lecture at the University of Richmond has been viewed more than 17,000 times, and he has co-authored an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education about his experiences in joining a government accounting course with a course on Victorian literature. Joe, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hey, Bonnie, how are you doing? It's a great sunny day in Southern California. I'm doing great. How about you? Well, it looks like it may start raining here in Richmond, Virginia within the next hour or so. So it's, it's a little cloudy. Not too bad, though. We were chatting a bit about how many connections I've had a chance to make through this great opportunity to do this podcast. And you and I were connected by James Lang, who's been on the show three times now. And I'm actually more than that if I count the, the guest, guest uh, call-ins that he's done. I'm curious, Joe, how did you and James Lang first get connected? Uh, it's a bit of a long story. About eight years ago, I wrote a free teaching tips book that I put up on, on the University of Richmond website. And it was just things that I thought were practical guides to helping people become better teachers. And I wanted some way 
to get the word out. It was free. I wasn't going to make any money on it. And one day I picked up a Chronicle of Higher Education and I read this column that was by a guy named James Lang and he was so astute in thinking about teaching. I was just impressed by what he had to say. So I, I was actually eating lunch at the time. So I, I, I tore out this column and came back to my office and I sent him a free copy of my teaching tips book and just said, I wrote this. It's on the internet. I hope you'll read it. And thought, well, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. He's never going to read this. And sent it to him. And about two months later, I get this email from him saying, I read your book. I thought it was great. I've just written a column about it in Chronicles of Higher Education. It will be out in two or three days. Mm-hmm. And I was just flabbergasted that he had actually read it and, and, and uh, talked about it in the Chronicle. And since then, we have emailed back and forth Oh, two or three or four or five times a year just talking about teaching and getting the word out and he he will often ask how I do certain things since since I you know, I've taught for forty six years and so I've for better or worse I've had a lot of experience. That's how we got to know each other. Oh, I love that. And he it can be so touching to have him write about your work. I he wrote an article about the teaching in higher ed podcast and I started weeping when I read his draft. He sent it over just to make sure that he had gotten things accurate. And I thought, not only did you get things accurate, but I was so moved by what he had to say of the impact of the podcast. So it's just so wonderful to be connected with you. Joe, I wonder if you can take us back in time and tell us about maybe what you remember about your first few months of teaching. Well, yeah, having taught for 46 years, <laughs> you know, I tell my students that, that, that I started teaching 46 years ago, and I, and I always tell them that when I first started teaching, Richard Nixon was president. And when I tell them that, these, these kids are all 19 years old, you would think that I had told them that I taught Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> it's just like nobody can believe, not, not these young people cannot believe that I actually taught when Richard Nixon was pre- that was actually alive when Richard Nixon was president, <laughs> let alone was a college professor. Oh, wow. When I first started teaching, I knew from the beginning that I really wanted to teach and teach fairly well. And so what I did for the first year, I taught in grad school, and I was teaching these horrible times that none of the tenured faculty wanted to teach. And I kept a diary, and I would come home every night after I taught, and I would write what I had done in that class and how well it had worked, and how I should have fixed it some other way. And and I felt that for a person who knew nothing about what they were doing, that was so helpful to me, because it forced me to think about what actually happened. And I've recommended to many, many people over the years, if you want to become a better teacher, start writing about it. One of the reasons I do a blog is not only do I want to kind of talk with other people about teaching, I want to think about teaching for myself, and so writing has helped me ever since the very first classes I began, just because it forces you to, to, to take vague thoughts and put them into concrete words. Do you think that the journaling that you've done is helpful more so specifically down to that given course session didn't work well, I need to rework it? or more broadly speaking about your teaching approaches, or should I not make this a binary thing and they're both helpful? (laughs) You know, when I did this at the beginning, everything to me was uncertain. Maybe everything still is uncertain for that matter. But I would walk out 
and I wouldn't even know what had gone wrong. Mm. I, I, I would know that something had not gone right, but I wouldn't know what had not gone right or what was happening in class. So what I was trying to do was effectively to find out what I wanted to be as a teacher and who I wanted to be as a teacher by simply analyzing how did this class go today. It was a wonderful exercise. I, 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 to a certain extent, I regret that I don't do it now. I've become, I guess, too busy. But just the idea of saying, okay, for the next 15 minutes, I'm going to think about what happened today. It also helped me to realize that you taught different students different ways. I would have some students that would react positively to certain type of things and other students that would react not so positively. And it forced me to think about why one student would you know, be a very, would, would wake up and really get interested if I did one thing while another student would kind of roll their eyes and, and start looking out the window. You really have to think about every single thing that's happening when you're dealing with a classroom of, of students. It can be overwhelming, I know, because I, I almost feel like my brain is, is calculating all these different things and looking into their faces. And I remember early on in my teaching, I really didn't read their faces very well. And I think I've gotten a little bit better, but I also think I've gotten even better at recognizing I have no clue what's going on in their brains. I can't really read them that well. And that's why it's so vital to be thinking about how do we prepare our students for success. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that. But, but first, let's start out with, Joe, why is it important for us to think of ourselves in the role of helping our students succeed? Well, you know, I, I'm a big believer that nothing ever happens by accident. I, I, you know, I, I used to talk to people who would tell me that they had, had careers in business and they wanted to become college professors, and they always would say the same thing. I just want to go in there and tell them all war stories. And I'd always make the point, listen, teaching is a lot more complicated than just telling war stories. Teaching is one of the most complicated things you can do because you are dealing with so many different, different individuals with different needs and different wants. And so I have found, and this is just my own personal way of teaching, that, that I do better if I really plan out virtually every aspect of teaching. And one of the things I've always recommended is break teaching down, break your teaching, you break your classes down into as many component parts as you possibly can, and then analyze each one of them. Don't think about yourself as teaching a class. Think about the individual components of that and try to figure out how you can do so, you know, so you can do better in any one thing you do. And, at the end of the day, it's not you that's successful. It's getting your students to be successful that's important. And how do you go about doing that? I remember one of the things I've always said is I, I really enjoy successful sports coaches. You know, people like Vince Lombardi from years ago or Bill Belichick from today. And how do they go about taking a team of 30 or 40 or 50 fairly young people and getting them to do well? And when I first started teaching, probably the most famous coach of the day was a guy named John Wooden, Wooden mm -hmm. out at your neck of the woods, who coached basketball at UCLA. And he always said that the very first thing that he taught his, his players at the beginning of every season, he'd bring them into a locker room, and he would teach them how to put on their socks. And yet everybody would just kind of go, 
what? You're the most famous basketball coach in the United States, and you start off teaching your players to how to put their socks on? And his comment was, I want to show them that every single thing we do has a right way and a wrong way. And if we're going to be successful, we have to learn how to do it the right way, and then we have to do it the right way. So when I, you know, when I work with my students, I always tell my students, you know, there's right ways and wrong ways to do this. If we're going to teach you as much as possible, we're going to teach you how to do it the right way, and then we're going to do it that way. How do you get across to your students, especially early in a semester, the extent to which you care about them? You know, if you're going to be a, a good teacher, and that's one of the things I want in my life is to be a good teacher, it strikes me that you have to start by knowing what you yourself want to accomplish. If you don't know what you want to accomplish, then I don't know that you'll ever get anywhere. You can't convince the students that what you're going to do is worth the time if you don't know for sure what you want to accomplish and if you don't tell the students that. So I always start with, with what are my objectives, and I have two objectives that I've had probably for a decade. One objective is what I call a personal objective, and the other objective is what I call a subject matter objective. So my personal objective is this. At the end of my semester, and I tell the students when they walk in, at the end of the semester, at the last day of the class, when everything is done, I want them to walk out of my room, and I want them to say the following basically four things. I never thought I could learn so much. I never thought I could think so deeply. I never thought I could work so hard and it was a lot of fun. Mm. That's my personal objective for them. And that, that, because that stress is what I want. I want them to think. I want them to learn. I want them to work. And I want them to enjoy it. I don't want to do it just because I force them to do it. I want them to enjoy that. And I want to put the stress on the word I. It's not about what I do. Heck, I already know the material. It's about what they come out with with. So when I start the semester, I already know what I want to hear from them on the last day about work, about learning, about thinking, and about enjoyment. So that's my personal goal for them. As far as my subject matter goal is concerned, and I tell them this over and over and over and over, and that is that I am not going to tell them anything. I have a, I have a saying in class that kind of drives them crazy. I tell them. I am paid enough to ask you questions. I am not paid enough to give you any answers. The answers are up to you. You have to figure it out. Now, that often makes them kind of ponder what, because they're not used to that. But they understand the benefits. So then what I tell them is that what I'm trying to do is I'm going to bring them in there every single day, usually 41 classes a semester, and I'm going to ask them the weirdest oddest, most bizarre puzzles I can come up with. And then I'm going to help them to figure out how to solve those puzzles. So at the end, they can take their own odd, weird, bizarre questions, and they can figure them out for themselves. 
So I think the way you start this is that you have objectives that you like, that you understand. I mean, you know, you talk with a lot of teachers. You know, one of the questions is how much do the teachers have as real objectives? Do they know what they want to do? So I think they start with objectives. And I think then, after you have your objectives, I think it's important to figure out how you communicate with students. There has to be a way to communicate to the students that can't read your mind. Yeah. So when you talk about how do the students know that I care about them, well, the students know that I care about them because I communicate with them. I've always said the secret to a successful marriage, I've been married for 46 years, and the, the secret to a successful teaching is to be sure that you communicate openly, honestly, and fairly frequently. So one of the things I do, if you were taking my class, you would, you would think this was overkill if nothing else. I email my students an awful lot. You and I could probably define what awful lot actually <laughs> means, but let me give you an example of yeah, that. Please. My class, my next class will be the end of August in 2017. So what that, four months from now, three and a half months from now, something like that. The students for that class registered in April, our registrations in April for next fall, one week after the, the registration, I sent all my students the first email for next fall. I introduced myself. I talked about the class. I talked about why the class was important. I explained to them that I was going to send them some emails. And as far as I was concerned, if they were going to take my class, they needed to read those emails. I wasn't going to fill up their trash bin. I was going to send them stuff I thought was important. And probably over the summer, I will send them mm, 10, 12 emails where I talk about lots and lots of stuff. Because I want, when they walk in on the first day of class in August, I want them to be ready to conquer the world. I want them to be ready to just learn all kinds of stuff. And so I'm going to spend a whole lot of communication time over the summer getting them ready for that. So you know, if you ask me how to get students geared up to be successful, I always say two things. One is, Know your objectives. Know what you want to accomplish. If you don't know what you want to accomplish, then you're liable to accomplish anything. And secondly, figure out for you how you want to communicate to students. It may be as clear as glass to you what you want, but if you don't tell them in some way, either through a chat room or a private Facebook page, or in my case, an, an email, they just won't understand what you want. And so those are the two things that I've already started, and I won't even get into this. When the semester begins, I usually email them about five times a week. So they get sick of that. But you'd be surprised at the end of the semester, the end of the semester, they have accomplished an awful lot. Because they've got a goal that's worthy of, of doing, and they know how to get it done. They've learned how to put those socks on the right way, <laughs> and then everything else we do, we kind of base it off of that. Can you talk a little bit about the transformation? Because one of the things I do share with faculty, especially as they're starting to want to experiment with a more active learning approach or, mm -hmm. or try something they haven't done, I want to always be sure they know 
it is unlikely to be met with joy initially. Because <laughs> what you're, you talked about earlier, I want you to say at the end of the semester, I never mm-hmm. thought I could learn so much, think so deeply, work so hard, and it was fun. We're not at the end of the semester yet. And so sure, I'm probably sure. not super excited, especially our students today mm-hmm. feeling really overwhelmed with how much they're being communicated to. They have got financial aid and textbooks and all that. I may sure. not find the five times a week joyful now, but can you tell me a story about someone who at the end of the semester told you that, wow, I didn't think that was going to be as helpful as it actually was? Well, heck, I can tell you one real quickly. I just gave a final exam last week, and one of my students, who I think made a B minus, wrote on the bottom of my final exam. It wasn't like I asked her to write something. She just wrote on the bottom of the final exam. So I, I, I can't quote this exactly because I don't have it in front of me. But she said, you taught me so very much about accounting, and you taught me even more about life. Okay, that to me is what I want to hear from a student, that I taught them accounting, but I taught them more about life. Part of that gets to be, you know, what role do you want to play as a teacher? Do you want to be a teacher or do you want to be a mentor? That's one of the questions I ask a lot is, if you, if you want to be a teacher, that's a wonderful profession. If you want to be a mentor, that's a wonderful profession also, but they're slightly different. And I view my role as a mentor. So now, the question then kind of comes up, and I think this, is, this is, goes back to part of the idea of an objective, and that is how do you know whether you want to be a teacher or whether you want to be a mentor? And what I always tell people is this. And there used to be a pizza commercial that would say, it was by Tombstone Pizza, what do you want on your tombstone? So I will go into a teacher and say, okay, let's assume that your students are writing your tombstone, that they've been charged with, you know, that writing what's going to be on your tombstone. And what would you want them to write? Do you want them to write, for example, in my case, he taught us a lot of accounting. I, you know, that's a great, I have no problem with that, but that's not my goal. I want to be something different than that. And so I always tell people that what I would hope the students write on my tombstone is he cared enough about us that he pushed us to be great. Because hmm. that's really what I want to do. I want to push the students as hard as I possibly can to be great. But you've got to convince them you really do have to convince them of that. For example, let me give you one thing that I think works fairly well. At the end of every semester, I always write a note to every student who made an A in my class. And I just say, listen, you were great. 20% of students made an A, and you made an A, and I'm so proud of you. I, think you just, I just want to tell you personally that you were great. And after I tell them that, I ask them for a favor. I say, would you write a paragraph or two about how, it, how you went about making an A in my class. Be honest, be serious, but tell me how you made an A in my class. And they will write some of the most interesting essays. They're only supposed to write a paragraph or two, some write pages. I then cut and paste every one of those, the good, the bad, and the ugly, out, and I send it to my next class before they get there and say, okay, I want you to make an A. Here's what last year's students said about how to make an A in my class. 
for one thing, your, your point's very well. When I talk about I want you to work hard and learn, well, sure, the students are going to roll their eyes. But when last year's class says, you know, if you come in and you do the following, you're going to learn more material than you've ever believed possible. That really makes a very big impression. What a student tells a student is very different than what a faculty tells the student as far as belief is concerned. And that's something anybody can do. Just write your students who make an A, tell them to, to write you a paragraph on how they made an A, put it in a file, send it to your next class and say, listen, you want to make an A? Here's what the previous class said. And it's amazing how many students will come back to me and say, as soon as I read that, that I started getting a feeling that you wanted something more than just memorization. And I wanted to be the one to write that paragraph the next time through. Mm, I love it. I love it. I, it, really, yeah, it really does work well. I know. Yeah, and it's uh, sometimes the things that work the best are really the easiest to do. You, you, not only are you being nice to the former students, when they write those things, yeah, they really do tell the students exactly what it takes. I, I'm always saddened that some students never figure out what I want. It's just like they just never exactly see what I want. But the students who do well do recognize what I'm shooting for, and they give me that, and I pass it along. One of the things that I am continually intrigued by is what you called bizarre puzzles and what Ken Bain refers to as the big questions. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if you would give us one or two examples. If I were to take an introductory accounting course with you, what are a couple of the bizarre puzzles I'd get to, to tackle in that course? Okay. Let me think real fast. Let's assume you, it, it, companies will spend a lot of money on research and development. Mm -hmm. And research and development is the money they spend to come up with new ideas. For example, last year, Apple, very well-known company, spent $10 billion on research and development. And they do this so that they can come up with new iPhones and new iThings and this and that and the other, so they can make more money. That's pretty clear. So I will set up a scenario, and I will give it to a student one day ahead, and it will be a company has spent $3 million on research and development a million on one project, a million on another project, and a million on another project. One doesn't look very good. One looks very, very good. And one kind of like Goldilocks is in the middle there. And I ask my students to tell me as many different ways as possible that you could report this in accounting. And now they will automatically want to tell me the rule because the rule is in the book. And I say, I will count points off if you tell me the rule. I don't want to know the rule. I want to know the possibilities. And I want to know as many possibilities as possible. And so when they come in, we'll have been together about six weeks by that time. Mm -hmm. They will usually come up with five or six different possibilities. And so we'll put them up on the board and say, okay, here's six possibilities. And then I will say, okay. These are all the possibilities. If you're going to be king or queen of accounting rules, which one of these makes the most sense to you? And sure enough, we'll start, you know, somebody will say this one and somebody will say that one. And what I'm trying to do is to get them to come up with their own ideas, to take that puzzle and come up with their own ideas. 
then eventually I'll say, okay, somebody tell me what the real official rule is. And they all know the official rule, and they all point at this one rule that has gotten no votes because that's the official oh. rule. And they go, I don't – and they go, say, okay, that's right. That's the official rule, but none of you picked it because it doesn't make any sense. And they go, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And then I'll say, okay, do the people who make these rules, are they dumber than we are? And they go, no, 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 no. We're a bunch of freshmen in college. We're not, we're not, we're not smarter than they are. There must have been some reason why they picked that rule because we didn't pick it and they did. I need for somebody to explain to me why they picked that approach. And then we have a fascinating conversation about why would they have done it that way. And at the end, we come up with some pretty good answers. But to me, that's about a 30-minute conversation, and in that 30 minutes, I teach more about accounting than I could teach if I just talked nonstop for days because it's just such an – and the students get involved with it. Even if they don't care about accounting, the idea that you've created that puzzle and you've made the puzzle make sense to them, and then you come up with an answer that isn't right – just fascinates them. And so we have such a great, that's a, that's a wonderful 30 minutes of that time. And it goes back to what I tell them, you know, to begin with, you've got to figure it out. I'm not going to tell you the answers. It's not my part to tell you the answers. You have to figure this out. But you can't do that to a student unless you are there to help them. You have to be a guide to them. You can't just throw them out there and go, well, you figure it out. I'm going to go back and take a nap. You have to guide them. And it's an interesting conversation. I sometimes do a similar thing in that I'll uh, have a little puzzle around the different ways that companies will decide to price things. And mm -hmm. I'll put, I'll take, bring in little paper bags and put something inside the paper bag and everybody's going to get something different and they don't know what theirs is going to be. And mm -hmm. then they have to get into a group and list all of the possible ways you could decide how much to charge for whatever's in your bag. And it's yeah. such a better way for them to learn about different pricing strategies. Because I find so much of the time they are thinking, whatever our pricing strategy should be, it should be the, be the cheapest and the best. And it's kind of like, well, that's kind of like a little. And, and then just to recognize all the other possibilities and that many companies have a wide range of reasons why they would make a choice. And it's not always to be the cheapest out there in the market. But rather than me lecture on that. Sure. The little mystery of the bag and what's in there sure. and we all have different things. And I'm, I just am staggered by the wonderful things that they'll come up with and always stuff I never would have thought of as I was preparing the little mystery. Yeah, one of the things that I always tell, tell myself and, and other teachers is, if possible, don't have the teacher say more than 50% of the words. Because as soon as you get pretty far above 50%, you're just lecturing. The hard part, though, is if you, you can't just go, okay, guys, it's your turn to do the 50% of talking because they don't know what to say. You have to set up, in, in my case, puzzles, and that was what you're doing there. You have to set up some kind of a situation where they have something they can talk about. Um, and, and if you give them that opportunity and you have it set up, that's one of the reasons I like that I've talked for so long. Eventually, you start figuring out what does work to get them to talk? But if you, if you do more than 50% of the talking, I, it, it, you're, you're going to lose something. But it is so easy 
because you know this, you have these quiet spaces and you don't like quiet spaces, so you talk. You know, you have to learn what. How do you get the students to do the talking? What have I not asked you about preparing our students for success early in the semester that we've got to talk about before we get to the recommendation segment? Well, here's something I did yesterday, and and one of my theories about teaching is that most students are fairly bright individuals. Some of them are very bright individuals, but most of them don't know how to be good students. They've they've kind of relied on smartness and not on skills. So for my junior level class, I wrote them an email yesterday, four months ahead, and I told them about a book that I would recommend called Make It Stick by Brown, Redinger, and... Daniel, I think I have those names wrong, but, but Make It Stick is the name of the book. And it's a great book about how to be a great student. And so I write the students and say, listen, do this or don't do it, I don't care. But if you'll buy this book and if you'll write, read it over the summer, you have enough time, I will give you three bonus points on the first test in October. Now, it's only three points, but I've done this now for the past three semesters and about half of the students have read at least 75% of the book. And I myself think that's one of the best three points I've ever given anybody Mm. is that I have said, listen, you're going to have a summer where you don't have anything to do. This is a great book to teach you how to be a better student. I'm willing to give you a bonus. The bonus is three points. Read it by October 1st, and I'll give you the three points. And I think that has made a... Big change, now big change, maybe a, a, a big change for some of the students, because some of them caught walking in my office and say, I learned things about being a student that I did not understand. I thought about it was all about sitting down and just reading the book over and over and memorizing things. There's a case where I'm not teaching them accounting. I'm trying to help them to become better students, because if they become better students, they can learn accounting on their own. And that's just an easy way to do it. And I had a way to communicate. I had the email. I sent it out. I'll remind them about July 4th. I'll send them a reminder and say, you know, if you haven't read that book, you've still got another month or two. But that's one thing I think is a way that you can help students is to give them suggestions that, that can help them become better students. And so that was one I did yesterday, so it's on my mind. Before I get to the recommendation segment, I've got to ask one more question because I'm my, sure. my curiosity is piqued. Do you have any advice for us on having more energy in our lives? You are such an energetic person. <laughs> it is infectious. And I wonder what the secret sauce is. Uh, good DNA. I've always had a lot of energy. I just, I'm just an energetic person. I'm so blessed to have the energy. I will tell you, though, and, and we could have another hour-long conversation about this, I eat extremely well Mm. and I exercise every day now whether that's I have energy and then I do it or not but my diet is one that would be surprising to you and I do exercise I went to the gym this morning I I think you can't just sit and watch TV too much or you won't have the energy I mean you know I've I've taught for 46 years I plan to teach for 14 more Mm. I, I will tell you Something that's helpful, my best friend on campus, and it's good to have this because it's a role model. My best friend on campus is a full-time journalism professor. 
full time. He just turned 81 mm. and still teaches. And every time I talk about retiring, he looks at me and calls me a wimp. Having somebody that's ahead of you like that is a because if I if I teach as long as he is taught, I literally can teach till I'm six. Till, I can literally teach till I've taught sixty years. That would be a heck of a a heck of a, a goal, I think. Wow. Well, the recommendation segment is representative for me this time of that I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours and hours. And oh, I hope what, you invite me back. <laughs> oh, I would love to. I would love to. That's thank you for saying that because then I can feel like this sure. is just the beginning because I, I just already have so many things I'd love to ask you about. But my recommendation is going to be that people go over to your teaching blog, which of course I'll link to in the show notes, mm-hmm. which will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 164 and just start diving in. I, I've been following it for a while. I, I can't recall exactly when I first heard about it, but it has to have been from one of James Lang's books, because yeah, it's been a while. But I remember seeing letters that you've written to your students, you post many of them up there. So we can see so many examples, you give such great teaching advice, advice for your students. I mean, it's just a wonderful, rich resource. And I'm going to suggest people go over there and start poking around. And uh, my suggestion for myself is now to put it on my calendar to get back in touch to have you back on the show so we can talk some more. And now I'm going to pass it over to you, Joe, what do you have to recommend for us today? You know, when you when you mentioned the recommendations, you said, "What are you thinking about now?" Yeah. Okay. You have a lot of people that listen to these podcasts, who are uh, virtually all of them are teachers. It strikes me that the world has got a lot of problems. I could start listing them right now: poverty, sickness, clean water, clean air, whatever. I, I'm a big believer that the only way that we're going to solve the world's problems is if we start educating a whole lot more people. Just think how the world would be different if we, if we had twice as many people who are decently well-educated. That would just change the world completely. We could solve all of these problems if we had that. The problem, it seems to me, is that we don't have enough teachers to really start making a dent in that goal. So we have so much better technology than we used to have. What I'm thinking about and what I'd like to recommend for your your listeners to think about is how can we create more teacherless education? Now, I love being a teacher, but I can only teach about 80 people a semester, and that's not making much of a dent in the world's problems. But it seems to me that we should be able to come up with ways to have completely, totally teacherless education using technology. So that if you're in a third world country or if you're in some place in the United States that just doesn't have good educational opportunities, that you could get a really good education, hopefully for virtually free, and not be stuck without a teacher. For example, it, you know, if you take a financial accounting class someplace and you don't have a very good teacher, you probably won't learn very much. The system we have now is very much dependent on teachers. And that just is going to keep us from having enough well-educated people. I'd love to see some foundation. I'd love to see a group of teachers say, we're going to solve the world's problems because we're going to add a billion 
more educated people to this, to this world. Now, they don't have to have an A-plus education, but can you imagine what a billion more people with a B education would be like? That's a goal worth having. So my recommendation is think about how technology could be used to create more teacherless education at some fairly low affordable price. That's a way we could all change the world. And I think that's something we ought, ought to, as teachers, think about. That's my recommendation. Thank you so much, Joe, and thanks for investing your time in this community. I'm really excited to air this episode and share your great work with others. And I'm even more excited now that you said you'll come back and have future conversations. Thank you so much for your generosity. Oh, it's my pleasure. It really has been my pleasure. Thanks to James Lang one more time for connecting Joe and I. What a wonderful conversation. If you want to access the show notes to today's episode, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash 164. And I just want to close out the show by saying how thankful I am for the Teaching in Higher Ed community and thankful to all of you who have been giving it ratings or reviews on whatever service it is you use to listen to the show. It's really fun to see the community growing and also diversifying. So thanks for listening and thanks for recommending the show to others, whether you just pass it along to a colleague or do it more formally through a rating or review. I'll look forward to see you next time on episode number 165.